0: Support for CJSW's podcasts comes from listeners just like you. Visit CJSW.com slash donate and join thousands of people who help make independent campus and community radio a reality for the City of Calgary and beyond. CJSW 90.9 FM, Radio in Color.
1: CJSW 90.9 FM broadcasts on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot and the people of the Treaty 7 region. We asked Carlin Blackrabbit of the Siksika Nation about the Blackfoot Confederacy. It's a collective of people that have a uh, territory throughout southern Alberta, and uh, we're Plains people, right? And we've... we're still here. Learn about Treaty 7 at the Glenbow Museum and listen to CJSW 90.9 FM for more.
0: Good morning and happy Thursday. My name is Marley, and I'm the VP External here at the University of Calgary Students' Union Thanks for tuning in this morning. The municipal election is over, so uh, this is the first time in a while where I haven't had uh, candidates, whether mayoral ward seven or ward eight or even ward one, um, on the show to talk to you. So um, after four months of interviewing candidates, it it only felt right to come back and do a municipal election wrap-up show. So today we'll go ward by ward, and of course the mayor's seat to unpack what happened, uh, to understand why and how the. Successful candidates came out on top. Um, there were some very busy races and some very close calls, so it should be interesting. Um, but this is a lot to uncover, and I definitely cannot do it alone. So I'm very excited to introduce my guest, Professor Jack Lucas. He's a professor in the Department of Political Science here at the University of Calgary. His research and teaching are in the area of Canadian politics with a particular focus on municipal democracy and representation, so perfect for today, Uh, municipal elections and Canadian political development. Thank you so much for being here. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me on.
0: Awesome. So we've got a lot to get through. Um, I know I've been following this election closely, and you have, of course, so uh, I'm sure we could both talk for days <laughs> about what happened. But we only have an hour, so let's get right into it, if that works for you.
1: Sounds good. Let's do it.
0: All right, let's start off with Ward 1, um, my home ward. Uh, in that race, we saw Sonia Sharp won by nearly 9,000 votes and 45% of the vote. There were nine candidates in this ward, um, and Ward Sutherland resigned, so it was an open seat. Uh, this was the first race in this election to be called early on in the night. Um, I interviewed Sonia Sharp on CJSW on the October 7th episode, so if you want to go back and listen to what Sonia had to say, you can find that episode on cjsw.com. My first question for you, Jack, is Sonia has, you know, previous experience with the city of Calgary um, on the administrative side of things. Do you think this experience will help shape the way that she does governance within the city, or is it sort of too internal to translate to this representative role?
1: No, I think it'll matter. It's um experience that's uh, it, it, part of what motivated Sonia Sharp to run was the feeling that um, she had accomplished some things on the public servant side of the table, mm-hmm. but in order to really get things done, she needed to put her name forward and try to be on the other on side the of the side. table, exactly. so to speak. And I think um, she's ready to go uh, in that sense. She understands the policymaking process, uh, the internal structure of the City of Calgary. I think probably also understands what does it take to motivate staff to um, get excited about new projects and mm-hmm. new proposals. Uh, I think when you've been on the public, on the staff side of things, yeah. you, know, you know what sorts of things frustrate you about councillors, what sorts of things <laughs> inspire you about councillors, and she can bring that to her new role. Of course, there will be a learning curve. It is different to be uh, sitting on city council. You yeah. know, the attention is so intense. Everything you say can be quoted in the newspaper. Yeah. Uh, trying to build an agenda, set priorities, all of those decisions are, are going to be a new experience. But I do think um, this is not somebody who's going to take 12 or 18 months to to feel like she's yeah, got a handle on out. things you know yeah. she's ready to roll
0: that's good to hear especially on a council of mostly new counselors, um and sort of cut that transition time in half um what did you make of this race i mean it's one of the ones that was not very close um she did win with 45 percent, and there was nine candidates so um it wasn't it wasn't a close race so what did you would you make of that
1: Yeah, it was interesting to see how uh, Sonia Sharp emerged from the pack, a very large pack Mm -hmm. in Ward 1, and won, in the end, uh, strongly in that ward. I think um, she had a lot of endorsements from a lot of people. And, in fact, I was chatting with somebody who lives in Ward 1 who happened to be uh, around at one point when Ward Sutherland was talking to a constituent about how much he thought Sonia Sharp would be a good councillor, had that endorsement of the outgoing councillor, And um, endorsement from the responsible representation, TPA, endorsement from Calgary's future. So a lot of uh, profile. Mm -hmm. And part of the trick of understanding Ward 1, I think, is that uh, Ward Sutherland decided not to run relatively late in the game, mid-July. And then there were four or five candidates who jumped in very, very late after September 1st. And so it was, I think, actually um, there were fewer people who were really – Probable victors mm-hmm. than it looks. And ultimately, the ward converged on Sonia Sharp in a way that didn't happen in all of the open races.
0: Yeah, for sure. No, it was really interesting to watch and I'm excited to see uh, what Sonia has in store for the next four years. I'm in Ward 1, so I'll be watching particularly closely. Um, yeah, again on October 7th, I interviewed Sonia, so you're welcome to go back and listen to what she had to say there about being the Ward 1 city councillor. Um, but let's move right on to Ward 2. Jennifer Wyness won with 48% of the vote, adding to the woman count, woman councillor count, if you're counting. Um, she beat the incumbent in this ward joe maglioka who only got 10 percent of the vote and actually came in third um councillor maglioka was facing an expense scandal that led to criminal charges so i do have a question about incumbency advantage but i want to save that for when we get to ward 13 but for this ward i'm wondering you know did the spending scandal catch up to joe or you know was there more at play here in ward two
1: i think it did catch up i mean Jennifer Wyness ran against Joe Magliocca in 2017 Mm -hmm. and only lost by a few thousand votes. It was already a pretty competitive environment in Ward 2. And um, it wasn't as though previously Joe Magliocca had been dominating that ward with 60 or 70% Mm -hmm. vote share. But then you layer on top of that the attention, the negative attention that Magliocca received through this term. And then the um, RCMP charges just shortly before the election. And I think when you talk to the people, you probably heard this yourself. Uh, the candidates in Ward Two did say that they were hearing at the doors that people had noticed people yeah. people were attentive to that issue, and and I think it's clear that that figured in the the vote choice they made.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to see how you know this caught up with the timing of it um, to be reflected in the votes. Um, and I I want to ask too, about you know Joe Maglio because like losing by that much really you know like it's not even like he came in second um but yeah that we saw a similar thing happen in ward 13 so we'll maybe revisit that later sure <laughs> um in ward 3 um three wards and we're at three women uh winning these seats Jasmine Mian winning 31% um and beating out her conservative competitor um, does the fact that this is Jody Gondek's ward farewell for Jasmine or was it, you know, sort of more of or more to do with her win?
1: I think it's um, it's a lot to do with her win. It's a competitive mm-hmm. ward. You know, there was a, a the second place candidate Brent Trenholm was running as part of the Take Back City Hall group um, yeah. articulating a, a conservative vision, fiscal conservatism, fiscal restraint and, and those sorts of things. And um, and I think that it it was uh, looked like it was going to be a really competitive race, and it proved to be pretty competitive. Although mm-hmm. a Jasmine Mian did win handily in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a, a a diverse ward. It's a ward that um, I think people really feel that it's a part of the city that doesn't get a lot of attention, and that's something that Jyoti Gondek. Articulated in 2017, and I think that candidates you saw again trying to um, articulate this time around. Mm -hmm. So um, an interesting race, but uh, really a strong campaign by Jasmine Meehan. And and I think there's just a a committed, slow build of a campaign, Mm -hmm. building uh, recognition and credibility week after week. really is the story of that victory more so than, um, you know, a a connection to... Councillor Gondek.
0: For sure. Yeah. And another really busy ward um, with lots of candidates. Yeah. What do you think stood out you know, to voters when they were going to vote and seeing Jasmine Meehan's name there or recognizing uh, from her campaign to set her apart from that long list?
1: Yeah. Well, she did have uh, plenty of good endorsements from mm-hmm. kind of across the spectrum Shane Keating's PAC and the Calgary's Future PAC and Look Forward Calgary. So there were some things uh, in that vein that helped. Set her apart, and um, and I think that uh, ultimately it it fairly quickly came down to let's say two or three candidates who who were in the mix to be really competitive for the victory, and um, so she was able to first distinguish herself as one of the key competitors, mm-hmm. and then uh, subsequently distinguish herself as as the the choice for the ward, and. Um, You know, she'll probably have a better idea of of how that exactly played out than than I do. But from the outside, it looked to me like uh, a kind of a classic successful open race strategy of just building and building and building, knocking on doors, trying Mm -hmm. to secure endorsements and having your name out there, building credibility. Yeah. and ultimately successfully.
0: Absolutely. yeah. It's it's really good to hear. I'm excited to see what Jasmine gets up to in the next four years. I know she worked really hard, so it'll be great to have her on council. Um, let's move on to Ward 4. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the last race to be called. Um, it was very close. 54 votes set Sean Chu apart from DJ Kelly. Um, before we get into it, this is a really close election. Um how does it do historically? What's the closest race you remember or, you know, you know of, um, you know, and what does that mean for the person who does marginally pull ahead?
1: Yeah, I I think this may well be the closest okay. outcome in wondering. Calgary's modern history. I'm not 100% sure of that, but, but but from what I've checked, it looks like it is. Um just 52 votes separate yeah. the top two. When Joe Sisi was first elected in 1995, it was a really close race. I think about 85 votes. Okay. And when Ward Sutherland was first elected in Ward 1, it was also really close. Just some 80-something votes separated him from the second place. So this is even closer than those. And those were both open races as well. So... Mm-hmm. Um, you would expect those to be more competitive and, and often closer. So it's all the more remarkable to see this kind of an outcome in an incumbent race in Calgary. Uh, so it's it's sort of doubly remarkable how close it is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, a lot of it, you know, after the advance voting period was over, information on Cha- Sa- Sean Chu's conduct uh, was circulated Um Chu's facing several allegations of inappropriate conduct while he was a police officer. Um, of course, our hearts and our thoughts are with the victim and, you know, for their strength all of these years and now coming forward with this. He narrowly pulled through this election, but many people, including the majority of this incoming council and the mayor-elect Jody Gondact, are calling on him to resign. So with this growing movement for Sean Chu to resign, what do you think will happen? You know, I know the process now involves the province and the minister of municipal affairs specifically but what actually are the options or the process behind a resignation of a counselor or a potential removal of a counselor
1: well uh i suppose like many other people who are watching this this situation uh, my personal hope is that what will happen is counselor chu will choose to resign and what would happen if that if that were the case is there would be a by-election. Mm-hmm. So some have uh, speculated that perhaps DJ Kelly, the second yeah. place candidate, would just sort of be um, would be the the victor. Uh, that's not how it works. Okay. There would have to be a, a by-election, and um, and I, in, in many ways, I think that would be that would be the, the best possible outcome in this circumstance. If mm-hmm. he continues to refuse to resign, things get much more complicated, mm-hmm. and the honest answer uh, is. As you know, I'm a municipal elections guy. I'm not as much of a municipal law guy like many others. I've been trying to read through the statutes and understand what the available options are. There are very few options available to city council. Um, There are not many options in the statute books right now available to the provincial government. Though, as Mayor Nenshi said yesterday, it's clear that the province does have the power to remove someone from office if they choose to do so. Um, I think uh, so. So, what could happen? I think um, there would be advocacy from the municipal government mm-hmm. to the province to do something about this. You see signals from the premier yesterday yeah. that they're uh, prepared for for that. And um, it's not entirely clear exactly how, what that would look like, but um, I, I don't know that there would be a lot of resistance from the province to making something happen if we go that direction. Okay. But but we'll see. And 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 perhaps over the course of the next day or two or week or two, um, we won't have to go down that road.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. I know a lot of incoming councillors, you know, as a result of this and other things that have happened this election, have talked about necessary changes to the Local Authorities Election Act. And, you know, without going too far into um, that, um, there's some pretty good examples this election about things that need to change. Um, What would be the process of that, and and what would you put on that list of things that that would have to change?
1: You mean overall with the uh, local elections? Well, um, you know, there's been an ongoing conversation in the city about campaign finance rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that uh, we haven't arrived at the perfect equilibrium on that front uh, by any stretch. So thinking about the rules related to third-party advertisers and um, when they're allowed to collect their money, there have been some... uh, loopholes that third-party advertisers were able to exploit to spend a great deal of money, all of that could be cleaned up. I think um, some of the rules that apply to polling and releasing polling data in provincial and federal elections, it wouldn't hurt to apply some of the same rules to our municipal elections. Fortunately, the polling that did come out was for the most part from high-quality firms Mm -hmm. and, and, and quite useful and reliable data. But That's never a guarantee, and it has been the case in the past that that wasn't the case. So that would be something to revisit. And then, of course, thinking about what do you do in the extreme circumstances when um, a candidate who is under investigation for hate speech, uh, for example, Mm -hmm. is running for office? What do you do? Uh, And that was something that was discussed, of course, a lot in the summer and then became less salient as people... Uh, really started to think about their vote choices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then, you know, this Sean Chu situation is another uh, version of that same problem of what is the province's role? And, and you know, I, I have to say, um, well, obviously, there's an important role for the provincial government in this current situation. And I'm, I'm hesitant to say that we want to move to a situation where the province is actively intervening yeah. in municipal elections, right? Mm-hmm. And say... Oh, well, um, you know, threatening to remove councillors from office and that kind of thing. That, nobody wants to go that direction. I don't think the provincial government does. And yeah. anyone who is uh, as enthusiastic about municipal democracy as I am <laughs> is not keen to see that happen either. And so one has to be careful about how those processes would really work in practice. And I think it takes a lot of careful thought. And I'm saying that more generally than, you mm-hmm. know, this current specific situation, yeah. which, might, which might require uh, unusual... Um, unusual processes but certainly i think looking forward we want to think about what is the balance you want to strike between not preventing people from running for office it's fundamental to our democracy that people can run Uh, but on the other hand you know not having candidates who are um, who are in court uh, uh, because they've been uh, convicted of hate speech or whatever it might
0: be yeah Yeah, for sure. I just know a lot of these themes that are emerging this election um, are bringing up sort of the issues and the challenges within that. What do you think, you know, what does council look like if, you know, Sean Chu doesn't choose to resign in the next couple of days um, and things start to happen? What does the productivity of council look like um, with him as Ward Four councillor?
1: I think council can move forward with many uh, items on their policy agenda regardless. I think you saw... Something of an example of what this could look like with Councillor Maglioke over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. who had fairly limited involvement in committees and uh the agencies, boards, and commissions of municipal government and all of the rest of it it's possible for council to um to move forward with its agenda even if one one councillor is not uh really involved in a lot of in a yeah. lot of committees. There are rules about every councillor has to serve on at least one major a standing committee and things, mm-hmm. so so there's no way to completely exclude someone from the policymaking process and, of right. course, the council meetings themselves. Uh, but I wouldn't say, I mean, there's no question it will be a very unfortunate distraction if that happens, yeah. but the council will be able to move forward with its uh, yeah. policy goals.
0: Well, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch in the next couple of days how mm-hmm. that unfolds. Um, We'll move on to Ward 5. Um, Raj Daliwal won in Ward 5 with 28% of the vote, which was another close and another very busy race. Anything to make of the race in Ward 5?
1: Well, in Ward 5, of course, uh, Councillor George Shahal decided to step out to run for That's right, federal,
0: federal, federal office
1: and was successfully elected as the Liberal MP for Calgary Skyview. So that opened up this race. Mm-hmm. Again, fairly late in the game, and so you saw a bit of a... Shifting of the terrain after he decided to run uh, federally, um, Raj doliwal had good endorsements from the high profile tpas won a narrow but um, uh, was successful won by two yep. percent margin, <laughs> so it was certainly very competitive. Well, he has it's... a strong community engagement background. This was a ward race that I think got less attention in the kind of city wide coverage. Mm-hmm. There was so much going on in so many races. Yep. That, um, But I think it was a really interesting race with, with a lot of uh, serious candidates, each of whom had a good base of support. And so it'll be interesting to see how uh, Councillor-elect Dhaliwal moves some of the agenda items that, that he was emphasizing forward, whether it's the, uh, the Northeast damage from the hailstorm and the lingering effects of that, yeah. and um, uh, amenities and services available in Ward 5 and covid and other issues
0: yeah absolutely yeah i have to admit this is one that i lost track of a little bit uh with all the other noise but um it'll be interesting to see um how raj you know moves forward and uh yeah like you said what he makes of his goals and priorities for ward five um in ward six was open uh an open race and richard poopman won with 48 percent of the vote my question about ward six um jeff davison jumped into the mayor's race pretty late um when he maybe could have otherwise had a safe return to his council seat in Ward 6. Why do you think he did this? What did he see in the race, uh, in the mayoral race, to lead to this change and step away from maybe that comfort of his Ward 6 seat?
1: Yeah, you're right. I think people like me who are naturally a little more risk averse look at a decision like that and tend to wonder <laughs> and think, Well, wow, this city councilors is a great job. You know, if you just seek reelection, you'll probably you'll probably win. You'll you'll still be able to go on yeah. you know, making your voice heard, so why not just kinda keep the good times rolling? <laughs> but the the fact is political ambition is a real thing, and mm-hmm. political ambition doesn't mean some sort of unbridled thirst for power. It means um Wanting to make a dent in the city as a whole, wanting to represent the city and and have the opportunity as mayor to articulate a a big vision for the city, set the policy agenda a little bit. It was clear that Jeff Davison was someone who had that ambition. He was involved in the Olympics discussion, very involved in the NHL arena discussion, these high-profile issues. And I think, um, in terms of the timing, I mean, I I don't think it was a coincidence that was after. Mayor Nenshi announced that he wasn't running for reelection. That we saw that announcement happen from the Davison campaign. Right. Um. So that may help explain the timing. And then I think just the that that feeling that politically ambitious uh, elected representatives have that they look at a role and they think I could do a good job there. I think I'm best equipped to do it. I think that's that's the uh, motivation more than anything is just feeling like this is the next step for me.
0: Yeah, fair enough. It was really interesting to watch those three councillors step away from their seat and run for mayor. So um, mm-hmm. anything else, you know, interesting in Ward 6 that uh, was your major takeaways?
1: Well, Ward 6 is an example, along with Ward 10, of what some of us were calling the quasi-incumbency advantage <laughs> because there were councillors who had been on council yeah. who stepped away for to for different reasons and then ran this time around. And Richard Putman's is a perfect example of this. Benefiting from, I think, the the recognition that he had from previous time on council,
0: mm-hmm. having a
1: pretty good reputation as a rep, as a representative of that area, and and like I say, a sort of a quasi incumbent advantage for him.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It was very interesting to watch. Um, here in Ward Seven, our home U Calgary riding, long term councillor Drew Farrell resigned and left an open seat. Terry Wong won in Ward 7 with just over 600 votes, um, which also was pretty close. Um, He totaled 25% of the vote, which is the lowest percent of the winners this election. Um, I interviewed Terry Wong on the September 9th episode, so if you're interested in hearing what Terry had to say, you can go back and listen to that episode. But my question about Ward 7, Heather McRae and Aaron Waite... Both came in just over 5,000 votes, um, as well as maryland North Pagan taking from, you know, a little bit lower, but still taking from that same pool of votes. Um, Do you think the results would have changed if these two candidates didn't split the vote the way that they did? And how did, you know, vote splitting play a role in the results that we see?
1: Yeah, I think this is absolutely the right question to be asking (laughs) about this race. Yeah. Um, I happen to live in Ward Seven myself, so I was especially attentive to this one. Perfect. We've been doing survey research with the Canadian Municipal Election Study going back to 2017, and then again in 2018, and again this year in the summer in 2021. One thing we consistently see is that Ward Seven is one of two wards in the city, along with Ward Eight, mm-hmm. where on average uh, residents position themselves to the left of center ideologically. So this is a inner core. Ward and has the characteristic ideological makeup that you'd expect of, of, of that kind of a ward. Right. And yet the ward elected Terry Wong, yeah. who clearly leans in a more conservative right. direction, who ran provincially for the Wild Rose Party in 2015. How does that happen? Well, it happens because Ward 7 residents had an abundance of options yeah. in that sort of broadly left of center zone. And and they were all strong candidates. So vote splits have been part of Ward 7's story going back several election cycles. This happened in a different way in 2017 and 2013, but it did happen. And, you know, you can think back to um, uh, maybe economics or political science classes where Mm -hmm. we we talk about game theory, the idea that a a number of people making perfectly rational individual decisions can lead to an outcome that they see as suboptimal in the aggregate. And, of course, Terry Wong ought to be congratulated on his victory. He won the the, the race, And um, at the same time, though, you have to think that the what is it, 15,000 people who voted for one of the three mm-hmm. main left of center candidates are looking at this outcome and thinking that it is a little suboptimal <laughs> from their perspective. So that vote splitting story there in Ward 7 is is a big deal. And mm-hmm. it's part of the reason it's it's really a big part of the reason that we saw the outcome that we did.
0: Yeah, I find it really interesting exactly what you said Um, and uh, not what I would have predicted for Ward 7. And when I interviewed the Ward 7 candidates, um, a lot of the issues that we were talking about, you know, downtown revitalization um, and having, you know, major, many major post-secondary institutions in your ward. What does it mean now, you know, Terry Wong being elected and having that different perspective than the other councillors would have maybe had on those major projects that a lot of Calgary is looking to
1: you know we'll see in some ways and we'll get to this uh, when we talk about ward 11 there's there's a kind of um overall it may be that uh ward 7 shifted conservative ward 11 shifted progressive mm-hmm. and there's yeah. something of a of a overall they kind of cancel each other out ideologically yeah. speaking um so we'll have to see how this affects the overall policy agenda of council but there's no question that for years the expectation has been that the ward 7 counselor would be a progressive voice Mm -hmm. in these debates that 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 drew farrell the counselor would articulate that um progressive vision for the city of calgary and um terry wong has a a different set of priorities different vision and so we're going to see that that's going to affect how these debates play out and maybe other people on council will take up that role Um, but uh But I doubt that, I mean, it's unlikely that we'll see Terry Wong uh, making the same kinds of arguments that we heard from Drew Farrell on some issues. It's Mm -hmm. not that ideology explains everything or matters for every single issue. Of course, there would be many issues where the two, I'm sure, would agree. Mm -hmm. Um, But he has a a very different uh, view of what the city ought to be doing. And so we're going to see that. That's going to be reflected in how how he votes on council and the positions that he takes.
0: Yeah, a big change for Ward 7, and yeah, we're already seeing the difference uh, already in these past couple of days. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's move on to Ward 8. Um, In Ward 8, Courtney Walcott won with 31% of the vote. Uh, I interviewed Courtney on the September 9th episode as well, so you can go back and listen to that to hear what Courtney had to say. Uh, We know that the sitting Ward 8 councillor, Evan Woolley, endorsed Courtney Walcott. Do you think that played a significant role in his victory?
1: I think it probably did Evan Woolley is a well respected figure in his ward, and to have that nod from the outgoing counselor mm-hmm. probably helped Courtney Walcott distinguish himself from the pack and it was a large pack in Ward eight, uh, like <laughs> like so many other wards this time around, but you know Courtney Walcott is a pretty impressive guy um a progressive guy in a in a progressive ward. He got endorsements from a wide group of third-party advertisers, uh, from Calgary's Future to Responsible Representation, the Shane Keating Group. So I do think the endorsements help in these open races, including Evan Woolley's endorsement, mm-hmm. especially when they're combined with the kind of strong, energetic campaign that yeah. Courtney Walcott was able to run. And yeah. so it, these things come together to, uh, t- to help lead to victory. And one thing that's important to remember, I think, about the endorsements is that there's a chicken and egg question with these things sometimes. Did Councillor Woolley's endorsement help Courtney Walcott win? I'm, I I I'm sure that it it didn't hurt. Um but why did Councillor Woolley choose to endorse <laughs> Courtney Walcott because he was a strong candidate? Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, sometimes um uh, it's like the rich get richer. The really good, strong absolutely. candidates yeah. get these endorsements, which helps them that much more. Yeah. And um, and that's, uh, that's probably a big part of the story in Ward 8.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited uh, to see what Courtney is up to. Um, and like I mentioned, you're welcome to go back to that September 9th episode on cjsw.com to uh, listen to what Courtney had to say and a lot of really exciting things that uh, stuck with me to, you know, move forward the um ward eight priorities but also just you know city priorities and i thought that was really exciting to hear about um we'll move on to ward nine um john cura i interviewed him on october 14th episode so you're welcome to revisit that um why you know i guess a lot of things that that stuck out in ward nine you know being one of the closest races why do you think that is um even though John Carlo Corral is an incumbent, is it sort of a dissatisfaction with him running for yet another term um, or the other candidate really stepping out?
1: Yeah, I'll be honest. This one's a bit of a mystery to me. You <laughs> know, we had 10 open races, we had two incumbent races that I expected to be competitive going in, wards mm-hmm. 2 and 13. And so I kind of put this one lower on my attention list because <laughs> I thought. Boy, uh, I, I assume Councillor Corral will just sort of cruise to victory there and um, so much for that prediction. Yeah. It was really close and I was told by people in Ward 9 that there was a lot of enthusiasm for uh, Naomi mm. Withers yeah. and and uh, she had been very involved, especially in the Inglewood and Beltline communities. I think there has been some frustration in Ward 9 f- coming from the community associations um, a feeling that Councillor Craw wasn't listening to their concerns whether that's fair or unfair i'm not really sure but there has been some dissatisfaction and clearly that um that bubbled up in this election and Mm -hmm. and made for a really close race plus the incumbent races were generally competitive overall so there's a kind of overall story there that's probably part of what's going on in ward 9 is what was happening all across the city combined with some some local stuff. And but but as I say to be honest, I'm gonna be digging into this one a little more mm-hmm. in the coming weeks because it came as a surprise to me just how close it was. Even if perhaps that's it's not that's on me more than it's on Ward <laughs> Nine. I mean I think if people who are paying attention did have a sense that there was something brewing with um, Naomi Withers in particular. But um what a close one. Yeah. yeah really remarkable.
0: Yeah, really interesting to me as well and I know that John Color has been around For a while, but, uh, you know, ultimately chose to run again um, in sort of this movement to, you know, keep existing councillors on council um, and to make sure council was one that is still moving forward. And I think that was the sentiments of his campaign anyways. Do you think that stuck out to voters or, you know, was Naomi's message just stronger or, or was it just not relating toward nine residents?
1: I wish I knew. I just don't know. But I, I will say, you know, perhaps we can, um, return to this at some point because we're collecting, we were collecting data in the Canadian municipal election study pre-election survey. Yeah. We'll be getting that in the next couple of days. And we're currently collecting data in this post-election survey. Yeah. So we are going to be able to use these survey results to get a better sense of just what, what went on in Ward nine. But at the moment, as I say, to be honest, I don't know.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so we'll keep in touch and, and come back, circle back later to, yeah, Sounds figure good. out what happened. Um, we'll move on to Ward 10. Andre Chabot won here in Ward 10 again. It's been a few years since we've seen him. Um, he's a former three-term counselor and also ran for mayor in the 2017 election, but ultimately lost that race. Um, there was no incumbent in this ward. Um, and I know that Andre is hoping to bring back some of the experience that he has um, to this relatively new council. Do you think that's what stood out about him, that name recognition and having that experience in Ward 10?
1: I think so. He had represented about half of that ward already in what is now Ward 10 prior to 2017. He ran unsuccessfully for mayor in 2017 and then returned to this ward race this time around. This is the other example of what I call the quasi-incumbency advantage, and all the more so because if you anyone who uh, lives in Ward 10 or drove around Ward 10 will have noticed that Andre Chabot's signs said "re-elect Andre oh Chabot." So it really was, <laughs> and of thought, course, notice. I mean, I suppose that's entirely fair. He yeah. was once elected, and he wants to get re-elected, so um, it was a a kind of incumbent race, though. You know, when you mm-hmm. put "re-elect" on your sign, that signals those incumbent cues that um that can matter a lot in elections it was a close race in the end but uh yes i think that you're right about what what was really driving it there
0: yeah that's an interesting tactic i haven't driven around by more tend to see that but yeah. uh that's interesting to hear and uh, you know just another takeaway that these sort of quasi incumbent uh roles worked but a lot of the incumbent ones the true incumbent ones didn't mm-hmm. um why do you think that is just the, again that name recognition and timing but uh
1: yeah, you know, part of what makes this election so hard to dissect is that it really—it's not as though there was, let's say, a big overarching scandal that everybody was affected by, or that there was a single issue that affected every single ward race. Yeah. There's so many distinct stories here that that in- intersect and overlap in some cases, but in many cases, it's a, it's as though each race is its own particular narrative, and that's true of these incumbent races, I think. So there are some parallels for sure between Ward 6 and Ward 10, and that quasi-incumbency effect seems to have been active in both of those places. Um, How that connects to the competitiveness of the incumbent races, I think is – I'm trying to think those through as somewhat separate stories. And and, uh, in fact, each of the incumbent races – is in some ways its own distinct Mm -hmm. story and why they they are so close. Um, Because, as I say, there does seem to have been some appetite for change overall, but the way that played out in each of these races is quite distinctive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They do do seem like a a separate... Uh, circumstances, And I know we have another one coming up in Ward 13 to talk about, which will be interesting. But we'll mm-hmm. move on uh, to Ward 11, where Courtney Brannigan won with 28% of the vote. Um, this is an interesting one, similar to what we talked about in Ward 7, where, you know, Ward 11 had a councillor, Brian Pinkett, when and then Jeremy Farkas, and now Courtney Brannigan. So we're sort of this, you know, far left more far-right and now back to being left-leaning again with Courtney. Um, What do you think is the cause for such a shift back and forth?
1: Yeah, I love Ward 11. I think it's one of the (laughs) most interesting wards in the city when you look at the electoral history there. This is a diverse ward. It's diverse economically from Mm -hmm. less well-off communities through to very wealthy communities. It's also diverse ideologically from left-leaning areas to quite conservative areas. And that diversity shows up in the results. This has historically been one of Calgary's most competitive wards. It's a ward where we have seen historically incumbents defeated with some regularity. And and I think you're right to say we've seen this shifting around from Pincott to Farkas and then to Brannigan, a kind of left-right-left movement. That really reflects the character of the ward, I think. Um, One thing I will say about this, though, is when you look at the Ward 11 results, it's it's a similar sort of story to Ward 7 in being... Mm -hmm. A little bit of a mess of candidates yeah there were a lot of candidates running in the sort of center right lane this time around some did better than others of course but but a lot of them got at least a few thousand votes so this is another one of those races where it's it's sort of the flip side of the Ward seven story where in this case people on the conservative side of things are probably looking at the results and saying this looks kind of suboptimal to me because there were so many candidates occupying not the same lane but but they're on the same side of the highway at least yeah. <laughs> and and uh and that's part of the story there but it's it's in some ways the reason that happens in the first place is because of the underlying diversity of the ward there's a large number of communities there and a lot of diversity among those communities
0: yeah it's interesting similar to you know the jeff davison story where jeremy farkas stepped away from ward 11 um, and then you know internally in ward 11 having such a shift is that again owed to the diversity you were talking about or a dissatisfaction with you know the way farkas led some of his votes moving more drastically to courtney
1: I think that Jeremy Farkas in 2017 ran an exceptional campaign knocking on doors for something like 18 straight months mm-hmm. to build uh, recognition and relationship with voters in that ward. And so if he had decided he wasn't going to run for mayor and he was seeking re-election in Ward 11, I expect he would have done well. He would have mm-hmm. been competitive. It's not as though there was an uprising against Jeremy Farkas, yeah. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. I think it has more to do with, like, uh, like you said, the underlying diversity of the ward. And, okay. and kind of anyone can win. It's a, kind of a microcosm of the city as a whole with uh, a lot of different perspectives. And so someone like Jeremy Farkas can win in Ward 11. Mm-hmm. Someone like Courtney Branigan can also win. Mm-hmm. It depends a little on how the number of candidates shake out and where they run. And also, fundamentally, who runs a, a really strong campaign. And Courtney Branigan ran a really interesting I, and, and actually kind of exciting and inspiring campaign, yeah. was very involved with um, candidates all across the city. She was. And and really did a great job of raising the profile of the race and in the process raising her profile as a candidate mm-hmm. in in being recognized as someone who really did want to build bridges with lots of other people in the city. And um, so that's, you know, that, that in some ways it's a very different path victory from what Farkas pursued in 2017 pre-COVID. You can just knock on hundreds and thousands of doors and meet with people one-on-one. A different strategy this time around. But in some sense, the same underlying story of a really good campaign distinguishing a candidate from the rest.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like Ward 11 was a ward I wasn't purposefully watching, but was just because of how much attention it was getting and and Courtney was bringing to it. So it was exciting Mm -hmm. to see that. Um, Move on to Ward 12. Evan Spencer won in Ward 12 with 39% of the vote. What did you make of that election? Another one that was not super close, um, but did have quite a bit of candidates on that list.
1: Yeah. So. This was the only race in the city, to my knowledge, that involved threats of lawsuits and (laughs) and legal battles. Um, So, uh, you know, I don't want your show to be embroiled in a lawsuit. So perhaps we should refrain from extensive comment here. Um, Joking aside, I think this was a comfortable victory for Evan Spencer after uh, an energetic campaign. Lots of endorsements. For Evan Spencer, uh, from everything I've seen and heard, a smart and sensible representative in the mold of Shane Keating, though perhaps ever so slightly to Keating's left, really just a good victory for him in Ward 12. And one of those people who, I don't know about you, but for me, as I asked around throughout the race, people just had good things to say about him. Mm, yeah. and, and so he was able to distinguish himself and ultimately uh, win by a comfortable margin.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's exciting to see. Um, And we'll see what uh, Evan Spencer has in store for the next four years in Ward 12. Um, But we can move on to Ward 13, um, because it's another interesting one of the races where the incumbent lost by quite a significant amount. Um, Dan McLean won with 47% of the vote, and the incumbent since 2000, Diane Koleilkart, came in last with only 23%. Um, In Wards 2 and in Ward 13, we saw incumbency advantage mean almost nothing. And I know there's different circumstances in Ward 2. But in Ward 13 specifically, why did incumbency advantage not matter much in these races, do you think?
1: Mm -hmm. So I mentioned back in 2018 that uh, we had done some survey research. This was in partnership with the School of Public Policy. And one thing I remember from our results in that survey was that Councillor had the lowest satisfaction score among her constituents out of all of the councillors at that time. And I think that those numbers, in retrospect, suggest that there was trouble brewing for the incumbent in Ward 13, going mm-hmm. back quite a long ways. And I don't think this was a particular event or decision on her part. It was nothing at all like the Naglioka situation. Mm-hmm. But I think there just was an appetite for change. And on top of that, it was a really clean race in terms of candidates. There were only two challengers. Both were really strong candidates, well-resourced, running energetic campaigns. So when you have, let's say, an undercurrent of dissatisfaction, Mm -hmm. and then you layer on top of that two very strong campaigns of people going and knocking on thousands of doors and saying, it's time for change, it's time for change. I think people in War Thirteen it's said, "Yeah, it's mm-hmm. time for change." So, um, it, as you say, incumbency advantage just uh, disappeared in those races for two different reasons. There's very clearly we can, I think, understand what happened in War Two. Um, in War Thirteen, it's a little more complicated, and I think is is has to do with those things that I mentioned, where um, a, uh, a building. Underlying dissatisfaction, or maybe just fatigue, yeah, um, with a, a current counselor who had been there for a long time, and combine that with campaigns that were really pushing a message of change. Even though those two challenger candidates were very different from each other, they combined with this message of time for a change, and that seemed to work. And they ultimately both beat Diane collier yeah, uh, who who finished third.
0: Yeah, they did. It's, it was definitely interesting to see. And I did, um, you know, take a drive through Ward 13 uh, during the election. And I didn't see a lot of Diane Coley signs or, you know, any sort of um, attraction to her campaign. Do you think that dissatisfaction and fatigue existed on her side as well? Um, because I don't know, you know, how much that energy in the campaign matched her two competitors
1: you absolutely could be right. I noticed the same thing when I drove around in Ward 13, the absence of signs and and it didn't get the impression of a really active campaign yeah. on her part. Now, I could be wrong about that. It's it's possible that that things were happening that we just didn't see, but mm-hmm. I think it's fair to assume that it was a relatively quiet campaign. And so that didn't help, you know, you really if you have these two challengers going out there and running very strong campaigns, against you yeah, it's hard. Uh, requires a really robust effort in response and it may be that uh, it just wasn't there this time around
0: yeah definitely interesting to watch and to talk about so thank you for that we'll move on to the final ward Ward 14 um, Ward 14 has one of the only and potentially the only successful incumbent uh, Peter DeMong winning with a sizable 66% of the vote how come incumbency advantage worked here
1: well, I think that uh, uh Peter Demong is just a boss. I think that's the technical <laughs> term, you know, that's what this political science uh, jargon here. I think so. Really well respected on all sides. when you see a conservative minded counselor like Demong get endorsed by noted lefty like Brian Pincott, which which happened, mm-hmm. you know that this is someone who's just widely respected and and a good counselor. Um it seems that people agree that he's good at the job. And so That's a view that Ward 14 residents seem to share. And so that's a case where if you wanted a classic example of incumbency advantage, it's got all the ingredients. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's a high-quality candidate to begin with, it's how they get elected in the first place, builds a good relationship and reputation with their constituents, is able in part because of that excellent reputation to scare off a lot of challengers and and benefits – Accordingly. Yeah. So that's that's uh, textbook incumbency right there. And it's not um It's not to say there's anything unfair about that or that incumbency advantage isn't uh, earned or deserved. It's just that is a a, a good example of how municipal incumbency advantage often works.
0: Yeah, it is. And I learned that in your class. So it's nice to see an example of it here. That's right. (laughs) So what is Peter DeMong's role now on council with one of the only true incumbents? Um, what What sort of role does he play now for the next four years to this largely new council?
1: you know he often has this um been a kind of a moderating voice on council particularly in this last term when there's been a lot of rancor and contentiousness and and so in perhaps that will continue to be part of his role i think just the experience the accumulated wisdom of what the policy making process looks like people will be going to him for advice mm-hmm. and i think he'll be happy to give it you know he just he does have this experience he's uh by all accounts, a good colleague, and he'll be someone I expect that, that everyone will be going to to say, okay, I, I have an interest in, in a bylaw on this issue, or I want to try and build a coalition of support for this item that I care about. How do I do it? Mm-hmm. How do I go about doing it? And what does the process actually look like? And what are the pitfalls to avoid? And he's somebody who knows about those things, who's been around, and will be helpful in that regard.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to see sort of that role um, that he plays on council for the next four years. Um, well, that is all of the wards. Um, I think we covered them <laughs> we did um, very quickly, but uh, lots of really interesting things to talk about. Um, let's move on to possibly the most interesting race of them all, the mayor seat. Um, Jody Gondek coming ahead with 45%, which is a sizable lead mm-hmm. uh, considering how many candidates there were um, and a lot of the polls ahead of the election had you know the race being really close between Jody and Jeremy um, and they would sort of leapfrog in the polls as to who was ahead but in the end it ended up being not as close as they would predicted um, and not very close at all. Why do you think this is?
1: Yeah there was a bit of a anti-climax on election night, you know, (laughs) as those mayoral numbers came in with Gondek in the lead, quite commanding lead. And she just kept it as more and more results came in, a very strong victory. I think what really explains it is that painted rock outside of this (laughs) Mac Hall, you (laughs) know, know. it endorsed uh, Jody, and that's that's, everything is is determined by that rock. You know, we all take our cues from the painted (laughs) rock. No, I think um, it is true that the polls didn't pick up a victory of this size, Mm -hmm. but you could see... The signals were there. In most polls, Gondek's lead had been growing. And in Janet Brown's final poll for CBC, the lead for Gondek was quite strong. So mm-hmm. I personally thought it was going to be closer because of different turnout rates among Gondek and Farkas supporters. But in in the end, it looks like her lead just kept growing right up through Election Day. So. If you kind of squint at the trend line in the polls over the couple of weeks uh, before election day, I think there's a story in there about increasing support, increasing momentum for Gondek mm-hmm. that culminated in this really strong win.
0: Yeah. No, it was it was great to see and like you said as the as the night went on it just kept getting bigger and um, my question, you know, just given the massive list of candidates, um, and only three have that, you know, counselor name recognition, and even with that incumbency or quasi incumbency advantage, why do you think none of the non counselor candidates broke through? I mean, n- none did outstandingly well and got, you know, just, you know, 2% for Jan Damery and those kinds of things. What, I mean, what does that make of their candidacy and how come it didn't look like, you know, what Nenshi did in 2010?
1: You know, I think it's fair to say this was an especially difficult election for candidates who were trying to do something like what Nenshi did in Mm -hmm. 2010. And this sort of slow build from relatively low recognition to prominence through the campaign. We had a very serious fourth wave of COVID happening A lot of attention on the provincial government through this period. And then, of course, we had an entire federal election smack dab in the middle of the municipal race. So if you want to try and run a campaign where you say we're just going to build and build and build, we'll make a a bold policy promise every week for weeks and weeks leading up to the camp to to, to election day. Or we'll attend dozens of events and meet people for coffee in their homes and Mm -hmm. build this thing over time. That's never easy to do. But Mm -hmm. it was especially hard this time around. Yeah. And so maybe in other circumstances you would have seen Jan Damery or Brad Field break through into the real front of the race. It would always have been tough because there were already three strong candidates who were fairly well-known from having been on council. But perhaps in other circumstances they would have had more of a chance to make a go of it. But in this context, um, with the constraints that all of these candidates were facing as they tried to plan and and execute their campaigns – It was just especially difficult to do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, having those three candidates on top being those, you know, sitting counselors and moving into the mayoral race. I'm wondering, you know, a lot of the polls had it between Jeremy and Jody and that back and forth. What role did Jeff Davison play and his votes, Um, you know, would that give, did that take away from Jeremy Farkas or take away from some of of these uh, non-incumbent or counselor candidates?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think that based on what we saw in the summer... Now, we did our first wave of our uh, Canadian Municipal Election Study survey in the summer. It was early days, and so I don't want to overinterpret it because Mm -hmm. we'll have better data soon, closer to Election Day. But it did look like um, Jeff Davison's support was more on the right-hand side of the political spectrum. UCP partisans, for example, were much more likely to support Jeff Davison than NDP partisans. And so probably if you had to guess, you guess that's coming, that those votes are coming from uh, Farkas supporters or other supporters. Now, um, I don't think that's universally the case. He did try to run a sort of a centrist, vaguely center-right campaign, a city-building campaign that was uh, very deliberately aimed to be less ideologically freighted than some of the other campaigns. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see that there was a, Pretty diverse base of support, and just anecdotally driving around the city, seeing you know, where the Jeff Davis and lawn signs show up,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it is a it is a more diverse coalition than just saying, "Well, you had two candidates on the right and one on the left, and that's that." Right. So th- this is um, it was a bit of a, a mix of support, but we have much more to try to understand about strategic voting. There were explicit calls for strategic voting yeah. in the. Closing stages of the campaign. Luckily, my colleague, Mike McGregor, who I'm working with on this project, mm-hmm. was smart enough to include some questions about strategic voting in our survey. So I am waiting uh, uh, oh, like okay. a child waiting for Christmas <laughs> to see those results and see how how that played out mm-hmm. in terms of voters' decisions on who stuck with Jeff Davison And who decided they were going to shift to another candidate? And is that is it a similar story with Jeff versus, say, Bradfield or Jan Daimry? You know, how did those third, fourth, fifth place candidate vote choices really, really look?
0: Yeah, and what's your prediction on that?
1: Um, I think that the people who voted for Jeff were really there was there was a. A kind of small but enthusiastic group of people yeah. who who supported him, and and there was support among the the kind of city building vision yeah. that that Jeff articulated from mm-hmm. the beginning with the Olympic bid and the NHL arena and those kind of big bold city building projects, projects. Yeah. Um, attract the attention of a particular. Subset of Calgarians that Jeremy Farkas's campaign was angled somewhat differently, and he he made it very clear that you know he wasn't really trying to or thought of it didn't really think of himself as being kind of the right wing candidate versus the left wing candidates. He he kept saying that this was about more like a a kind of a populist message about the little guy who had been ignored at City Hall versus the the downtown corporate developer mm-hmm. crew. Yeah. And so that that dimension of the of disagreement I expect will be re- reflected in the vote choice. So you'll see more support. And then of course Ward 6 I think is an important base of support for Jeff Davison. So yeah. the other expectation is I think you see stronger support there. Yeah. He built a reputation there. And just the demographics of the ward um there's a lot of people who do come from the um you know they they work downtown and they have maybe uh, um management or executive roles in downtown businesses and really care a lot about that city building idea.
0: For sure. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see. I'm excited to, to see those results. Yeah, me too. Um, so I want to you know, revisit Jody's success um, being the first female mayor of Calgary. There have been misogynistic comments since her win and throughout the campaign. You know, what does this say about Calgarians and why is it so difficult for women to run and be successful?
1: Well, um, it's it says that there's still a a long way to go, I suppose, and um, there's signs of progress. Of course, five women elected to council. Mm -hmm. We have a a, that's an improvement on the past. We have a council that's representative of the racial diversity of our city in a way that we didn't have before. So those are promising signs, but. You know, in the tail end of of Nenshi's time as mayor, he was very clear and vocal about the kinds of hateful attacks that he was getting. And you see some of the same kinds of things in social media uh, directed at mayor-elect Gondek. Mm -hmm. Um, This is one of the things that turns people off from running for office. And so that's an important an unfortunate consequence of this is that it's it has downstream effects. When people see this happening to someone, they're considering a run for office. They think, I don't want to subject myself to that or my family, my community. So Absolutely. um it's it's dismaying, of course.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um but also there are signs of hope and optimism in these results that that I think you can look to. Uh, if you want to, if you want to see the half full side of the glass, there's some evidence of that as well.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's difficult to see, but you know, happy that Jody Gondek was able to pave that that way for us and, and be the first female mayor of Calgary. Mm-hmm. Um, we're coming close up on our time, but my last question that I wanted to ask you is about the makeup of council um, and if you think Jody will be able to build, you know, that coalition of eight votes that she needs to be able to push her agenda forward.
1: Well. You know, I think maybe we're in a bit of a honeymoon period right now with this council, (laughs) but I'm very optimistic about this council's uh, capacity to get things done. There's no question there will be disagreement. I think none of the new faces on council will be pushovers or rubber stamp the mayor's agenda. These are smart and energetic councillors. But Mm -hmm. the prospects for Mayor Lech Gondek to be able to assemble coalitions of support for her policy agenda, I think, are really good.
0: Yeah. No, that's really good to hear. I'm excited for this incoming council. And like you said, maybe a honeymoon period, but regardless, I'm excited to watch and see what happens as we, um, you know, progress in the next coming weeks. It'll be mm-hmm. exciting. Awesome. Well, we made it through all the wars and through the mayoral race. I had doubts, but I'm glad we made it because there's a lot of interesting things to talk about. Thank you so much for being here with me to talk about all of this. Uh, It was really a pleasure having you.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Awesome. And thanks to everybody who was able to tune in. Um, It was an interesting election and a a very exciting four years ahead. So I'll be on every other Thursday now that the election is over. So tune in for updates every other Thursday then. Thanks, everyone.
1: Doesn't this guitar sound so good?